You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Neil Johnston from the National Archives of the United Kingdom. His paper was entitled Captain Crispin, the Navy Board, and the Construction of Charles Fort at Kinsale, 1677-1681. My research is, is on, I've been looking at governance in Ireland. We get lots of insights into governance at executive level. Orders being issued, we see them in the state papers, we see them in the Privy Council papers, we see them in proclamations. But I've been working away for the last while on who's actually carrying out these orders. Who's on the ground? Who are the middlemen, the sort of the junior officials? Who has to deal with the impact that government policies have? Um, and I came across um, uh, a serendipitous find, really, um, uh, a series of uh, extensive papers um, in the Admiralty Records of the National Archives, um, written by Captain Crispin, William Crispin. Um, and as all good officials do, he writes and writes and writes and writes and writes and writes and writes. And he put it, the, the paper I want to deliver to you today looks at Crispin's role as um, he had two positions in Kinsale. One, he was a muster master for the Admiralty, for the Navy, so he's working in supply, um, repairing ships, fiddling for ships, um, working with local suppliers and um, uh, local tradesmen. But he's also in charge of... um, He's effectively what we call a foreman, I think, while the the new fort is being built outside Kinsale at the end of the 1670s. And he gets himself into a few scrapes um, with the local men. So that's what today's paper is going to be about. But first off, we look at who was William Crispin, um, where did he come from, because um, I think it's, it's important, given the nature of what happens, to assess him. Is he, is he a reliable witness? Can we trust what he's saying? We then look at what he's complaining about, um, what's the problems that he's encountering, at trying to fulfil his role for the Crown. Then, as an, it's not always easy with Irish history. We try and verify his claims, what he's saying. Can we, can we add our other records to substantiate what he's saying? And then, I suppose, the question you need to ask then is, so what? Why is this noteworthy? Um, and, and I think it is. I think his papers are an interesting find, um, and they can shed light on an area that we don't usually see. So first of all, um, we look at who Crispin was, and we, we take... So... On the 16th of June, 1679, Privy Council at Whitehall receives correspondence um, from the Commissioners of the Navy Board, also in London, 
asking that I consider a letter from a Captain William Crispin, who was clerk of the Czech at Kinsale. In this letter, Crispin alleges that the workmen constructing the new fort at Rincoran outside Kinsale were flinging their rubbish into the harbour, which was likely to prove a matter of great detriment to the said harbour, he says, as it was settling on the shallowest part of the channel that lies very near unto the said fort. Now, both the Navy Board and the Privy Council in London were evidently unsure how to respond to this. So the Secretary of State uh, in England was instructed to write to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, uh, the Duke of Ormond, asking that he investigate the matter so that speedy care may be taken by all necessary orders to prevent the said mischief. And two days later, Charles himself, who was in attendance in council, follows up, writes to Ormond saying, look into this, this could be serious. So the matter gets attention at the most senior level. Ormond acknowledged the instructions, um, having received the instructions on the 22nd of June, 1679, and orders are written to Crispin to explain his allegations. Further orders were obviously dispatched to the local authorities, um, the council in Kinsale, to convene a a special commission of investigation to determine the veracity of claims too. By the end of August, the commission reports its findings to the Navy Board in London, but not back to Dublin, and this is something that I'm quite interested in. And at a national level, the, the matter appears to have gone away, but not at a local level. My interest in Crispin emerges from the nature of his work, the local interests he apparently challenged, um, and the insights that this gives into how important Kinsale was seen by the Navy Board and how important Kinsale was to London. Um, central to all of this uh, was Crispin's role as clerk of the Czech in the maintenance of the Royal Navy um, from Kinsale, um, and uh, the, the, the need for a fort at Rincoran and how important it was seen. Um, Crispin's correspondence with the Navy uh, Board uh, reveals a very interesting uh, dynamic um, and a new layer uh, of administrative correspondence for Ireland. Um, so, who is Crispin? Um, he's born in Kingston upon Hull in 1627 uh, into a family that claimed its descendants uh, from. Uh, men who had travelled over with the Conqueror in the 11th century. So, a significant enough family in the area. His father was also, his father was in the Navy, and he died at sea um, in 1644 and is buried at Carrickfergus. Um, and Crispin was in, um, also in the Navy at the time. Um, and they were both serving, I think, on um, Admiral William Penn's vessel, the Fellowship. Um, it's likely that young William Crispin um, was taken into William Penn's care. So I'm going to be talking about three William Penns who were all active in Ireland, in Cork, in Kinsale at the same time. There's the Admiral William Penn, um, who's the father of the founder of Pennsylvania, who's also William Penn, and then there's a cousin who's also William Penn, who's fulfilling Admiral William Penn's role as governor of Kinsale during the Restoration period by proxy. So it can be a little bit confusing. But I'll try to be very clear which one is which. Once I got the handwriting, it was okay, but until that point, it was, it was pretty difficult. Um, it's likely that young William Crispin was also on the ship, the Fellowship at the time, having started his naval service some years earlier, and it's possible that Admiral, Admiral Payne may have taken young Crispin into his care. Um, 
Admiral Penn was a parliamentarian uh, naval officer serving with distinction in the 1640s when he campaigned mainly in the Irish Sea with the title of Vice Admiral of Ireland. Um, and from 1650 further afield um, with a distinguished record in the First Anglo-Dutch War. By 1652, Crispin had risen within Penn's orbit, um, and he marries uh, a Rebecca Bradshaw, who is Penn's niece, um, at St. Dunstan's in Stepney in London in October 1652, and they lived at Tower Hill, where it's possible he becomes acquainted with Pepys. At the time, they certainly both worshipped in the same church. So these are the kind of circles that uh, William Crispin is moving in. Um, when the First Anglo-Dutch War breaks out in 1653, Penn is given command of the first squadron uh, of the Commonwealth Navy, and Crispin is promoted as one of his captains. And for this, he gets a medal from Parliament late in the summer, uh, 1653, for his uh, for his successful command of the ships. Um, so for the remainder of 1653, Crispin uh, was captain of the assistance and he's patrolling the Irish coast. We can track his movements. And thereafter, he serves in various uh, fiddling roles over the coming years. But he again sails under, um, under Penn's command as part of Cromwell's raid on the uh, Spanish possessions in the, the Caribbean in the mid-1650s. And he secures a landing on Jamaica, which secures the island. The island. Um, so he's good at what he does. Um, from 1655, it appears that Penn's loyalty to, um, to the Commonwealth are waning in favour of the Stuarts. And in August that year, uh, he was temporarily detained um, in the Tower for returning to England from the Caribbean without the Protector's permission. Um, and it, for several months, it took Cromwell to get over his little fit of peak um, before he releases Penn, and thereafter, Penn. Um, retires the lands he's received in Ireland and he goes quiet for several years um, having relinquished his commission um, but he's somewhat restored in 1658 when Henry Cromwell uh, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland at this point um, he knights him he's given a knighthood and then uh, in 1660 um, William Monk um, writes to him and asks him to come back into service. Um, Penn also forms very close relationships uh, with the Boyles in Munster, um, the senior family in Munster, uh, both of the Earl of Cork and Roger Lord Brothel. Um, and we see Penn nominated as one of the, for the three seats um, for Cork at the ill-fated 1659 Westminster Parliament, although he fails to secure the seat. Uh, Vincent Gookin Toby Bernard has detailed this. Vincent Gookin uh, disputes it, and um, Boyle's influence is challenged. Um, in the end, Gookin, not Penn, uh, was elected to the, to the Parliament. Um, but nonetheless, we see how closely uh, William Penn is involved in, in local politics. Um, when Monk writes to him, uh, uh, General Monk is the commander of the armies in England and Scotland, um, in 1660, Monk writes to Penn, asks him to come back into service, and Monk is one of the three captains who sails to Breda in April 1660 to bring the king back to England. Um, Penn's knighthood is then authenticated with a royal seal in 1660, and in 1661, he's created governor of Kinsale. And it's likely that within this, so we can't quite track William Crispin, but it's likely that at this time, Crispin goes to serve in Ireland. Um, so that's how, that's how this man from Kingston upon Hall ends up 
working in Munster, effectively, as far as I can tell. Although William Penn, Admiral Penn, is created Governor of Kinsale, he never takes up the role. Well, he never goes there. He certainly takes the money. Um, the cousin, William Penn, is also in Kinsale, as I say, and he's performing Admiral Penn's duties. Admiral Penn is MP for Weymouth, and he's one of the commissioners of the Navy Board. So it's in this kind of orbit that William Crispin emerges uh, as someone of interest to me. Um, from 1665, Crispin appears in various administrative roles in, Kins- in Kinsale in close cooperation with the cousin William Penn and another man, Thomas Chudley, uh, who was the master shipwright of Kinsale um, and uh, a brother to Crispin's second wife, his first wife having died in 1661 in Kinsale. So we know he was there. I just don't quite know what he's doing. The Chudleys are an important local family too um, who worked in the victualling and supply trade, uh, constructing and repairing ships, in Kinsale, and several of the family had served as the mayor, or as the title was, the sovereign of Kinsale, um, and there's ample paperwork to illustrate Crispin's work at this time as mustermaster. So every two weeks he's writing back to London, all the, the, he's accounting for expenses, and we can see his work building up, and his relationships and his networks reaching out into the, the Munster hinterland. Crispin is formally appointed clerk of the Czech in 1676, succeeding to the office from the cousin, William Penn. His candidacy for the position uh, enjoyed significant support from the diplomat and politician Robert Suddle, uh, who was then vice-admiral for the uh, the province of Munster, as well as Samuel Pepys, who presented um, Crispin's proposed candidacy to the Navy Board in 1676. The reason I've gone on a little bit about this is, in all of it, there's nothing to doubt that William Crispin isn't both good at what he does and a relatively straight shooter. And I think that's worth emphasising what I'm going to talk about. Um, alongside his duties as um, in the supply trade at Kinsale, uh, he's given additional responsibilities in 1678 when the work on the fort begins. Um, Plans for a fort had been drawn up in the 1660s uh, during the Second Dutch Wars and the Earl of Orrery championed it. Uh, Roger, Earl of Orrery, championed it. Um, It took 10 years for funding to be secured, which further exacerbated the difficult relationship between Ormond and Orrery because, as we heard about Ormond yesterday, he's very much a yes man, but... And he never really said no in these circumstances, but he didn't always follow through. Uh, And this really irritated Ori. Anyway, it takes more than a decade for the funds to come through, but they do come through. And plans are drawn up and the the creation of a fort uh, begins. It's Crispin's duty to compile daily and weekly timesheets on the labourers on the site. He's given very, very clear instructions that he is to account for all the labourers' time and spend. Men are to be docked. If you're half an hour, work started at 5 a.m. and went on until 7 p.m. If you're half an hour late, you lose half a day's wages. If you weren't there when the drum was beat. And from this paperwork tracing through it, we can see Crispin is annoying a lot of local people by doing his job. We don't have any comments about Irish builders because we've all been there. But Crispin is annoying people. Um, He's very much to the letter of the law. And that's important. Um, in May, as I said at the start, in May 1679, he writes this letter 
to the Navy Board in London, saying, ships are starting to run aground in the harbour because the men, the labourers building the fort, are acting on instruction of the engineers and instead of taking the soil and rubble away, they're just throwing it into the harbour as the fort is being built. And this, he believes, is causing very serious, our senior and experienced captains to run aground. Three ships run aground in April and May 1679, which is serious. Um, ships are being damaged, it's slowing everything up. Um, it's this issue that's being relayed to Ormond, who instructed Crispin to undertake a full sounding of the harbour um, and report back what he believed to be the discrepancies. Crispin performs this immediately um, at the end of June, uh, at the end of May, sorry, 1679, um, and he reports back in excruciating detail several times, but again not to the Irish Privy Council, but to the Navy Board on his findings. In short, he calculated that at low tide, instead of the harbour being 14 foot in places, it's between 10 and 12 foot, which 4 feet is whatever, that much. So, um, And ships keep running aground, as I say. This, however, wasn't the only part of this matter. Having received Ormond's orders on the 27th of June, he's also made aware that the sovereign of Kinsale, the mayor, was to assemble this commission to examine his claims. According to Crispin, those chosen were biased against him and were neither trustworthy nor familiar with the issues. The commissioners who visited on the 30th of June, according to Crispin's account, um, they give it a cursory once-over, they talk to some of the, the men, the engineers and the labourers, um, and they thereafter dismiss Crispin's, Crispin's claims, which he says, uh, which the parties concerned defended with many untrue and impertinent pretenses, but the outcome was always going to be uh, one way. Unsatisfied with this, Crispin requests that witnesses be called, but this was not agreed to until the sovereign again um, gave his approval. So on the 1st of July, further examinations take place, um, but not on the road. And hardly surprisingly, uh, the workmen effectively refuse to speak against their employers and they give out about Crispin. Other witnesses are brought in to reject Crispin's claims, um, with one stating that if 10,000 times the soil and gravel were thrown into the harbour, it wouldn't make any difference. And that's probably true. Crispin's situation then becomes quite sinister, as some of the disgruntled locals, as well as the engineers on the fort, had reported had reportedly um, they turned on him. And he embarks on a complaint about how the investigations have been stifled by other local gentlemen who made very ill use by combining together to stifle the business of the complaint, and he asked that another third commission be sent, not to strangers, clergymen, uh, nor to seeming men, um, but to the most knowing persons in and near Kinsale who were to be granted power to examine under oath those who were performing these tasks. Crispin's also convinced his... Um, that he and his family were in danger, that his post is being stopped so he can't get his messages out, either in the local post office or in Dublin. So he starts doubling up all his correspondence, writing it twice, um, which means you have to read it twice just in case he's saying anything new, but he's basically saying the same thing all the time. Um, he also claims that William Robinson, the chief engineer on the phone, Robinson is an Ormond appointee and he's very senior. So Crispin is going up against... He's not very clever in his approach, but he claims that this William Robinson um, 
is putting pressure on the locals, on the sovereign, on the mayor, uh, to have Crispin arrested and hauled before the assizes if he was in the county at the time where I have proof they have supported witnesses against me um, that I have cheated uh, that I've cheated the king. And he believes um, that others have been suborned to swear against him, Crispin, and falsely attest his guilt. Um, and he writes a very sinister sentence and he says, there is a threat on his, his and his 11 children's wife, his, sorry, his, his wife and his 11 children, um, that they will cut my throat and the throats of all that belong to me, so I am in danger. And there's a very, there's a, some marginalia in the correspondence where whoever the clerk is in London is going, we, he effectively says, we really need to help this guy. This, we need to do something for this man. So London is taking these claims seriously. He finishes his correspondence, uh, effectively, you know, requesting protection from the crown, um, from the local uh, skullduggery, it effectively seems. Um, and he asked for Charles to intervene. Now, what should we make of this? Can we verify what Crispin is saying? Well, we can try. Firstly, a report is sent to London by those commissioners who examined his claims and it emphatically rejected everything he said, suggesting that Crispin was misguided to think that the number of workmen on the site could come anywhere near to moving the amount of soil he was claiming was being moved. And that has to be true. They couldn't have physically moved the amount of tens of thousands of tons of soil he reckoned was being thrown in every single week. Men simply couldn't do that at the time. Um, but that doesn't mean that soil wasn't being thrown into the harbour. Um, just that the workmen weren't the source of the problem. It's more, problem, more probable that the actual source, see where it says block here at the point, there's two local fellows with a quarry here, and they seem to be dumping all of the um, <laughs> waste product whatever it needs to see and it's catching here. Um, that's what I think is happening. On the, on the 1670, this is a map drawn by the French in the 1690s, and it's very clear there's some sort of shadow here. Um, and it's, it's likely that it's in here. The reason I, I point at the blockhouse point bit is because um, there are records of the workings of the council in Kinsale in the 1670s and 80s, and the two men who run, um, who run that quarry, the blockhouse quarry, um, they're hauled before the, the council in October in Michaelmas 1678 at that session, and they have, to, they have to pay a very heavy fine for not disposing um, of the soil and that properly. Um, much of this, I think, though, I think it comes from personal grievances towards a man who was far too diligent in doing his job properly. Um, his role as muster master brought him into regular conflict with both the Navy, um, seeking supplies and repairs at Kinsale, um, especially captains, he wanted in and out quickly, um, and that wasn't always happening, and he, he's regularly writing about how disgruntled they are. Um, one in particular, a Richard Hodder, um, a Captain Richard Hodder, who's probably the brother to one of the inspectors who dismisses Crispin's claims. Um, he's on his ship, and, all of, and Crispin has to check through the, the crew lists to verify that the amount of men that the Navy is claiming for were there, um, and he's falsifying his list. He's overclaiming. Um, Hodder eventually loses his commission in 1681 based on Crispin's evidence. Um, 
So this is all interesting, but so what? And my, my take on it is, um, Kinsale is particularly important to the Navy. I've been able to figure out that Kinsale is supplying, is, is performing three roles for the Crown. It's supplying five times the amount of ships that Dublin is, roughly on a level with Plymouth, but not quite Portsmouth, so there's an awful lot of money and men moving around. Most of the garrison at Tangier is being recruited in Munster and, and in Scotland, and their Kinsale becomes a hub where men are being shipped in and out. Um, and there's brilliant reports, well, they're new to me anyway, there are brilliant reports about, it. say, a Dutch ship or an Ottoman ship appears in the Irish Sea, and it's out of Kinsale that the ships are scrambled to follow and engage. But Kinsale has become very, very important for the Royal Navy. The King is also spending... Uh, £10,000 on this fort and just to wrap up um, he spends a lot of money on it doesn't like wasting money obviously the insights these papers give I think are really good and at a local level about how Ireland has been governed and the problems that officials are encountering with the likes of those builders we've all encountered um, who don't show up on the Tuesday when they're supposed to this is what £10,000 was worth in 1680 and you can get maybe 2,000 horses, 16,000 stones and wool, or whatever it is. There's a lot of money going into this, and the Crown doesn't like it being messed around. Um, and I think, as my research goes on, I hopefully be able to find similar examples of see how Ireland has actually been governed at a local rather than at executive level. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.